Welcome to On Strategy Showcase. I am Fergus O'Carroll in Chicago. As always, you can connect with me on LinkedIn and be sure to follow the show on your favorite podcast platform by simply clicking the follow button. That way you'll be sure to get all of the latest episodes. Today is a uh, panel discussion and wrap up from our series on planning for effective outcomes. Now, I wanted to invite a couple of guests to come join me to sort of talk about our overall uh, impressions of the series and what the key findings were for us. And it sort of boils down to three things. One was our collective agreement that effectiveness is a collaborative effort. Um, there's a tendency within agencies or within uh, on, on client side for individuals or individual departments to be given the responsibility uh, for ensuring that effective work uh, gets created. And we all agree that that is not the way that it should be done. The fact is that it needs to be throughout the entire organization across all departments. And our goal should be to look for the weakest link in the chain and solve for that weakest link. Our second finding uh, was that we all agreed that there is sort of a, a collective high-level understanding uh, of the key principles of effectiveness, and, and, in, and knowledge of that continues to grow. But the challenge is that it's not exactly evenly distributed. And it's not evenly distributed in terms of not all agencies and all brands are on board with this, and not all individuals within those agencies and, and brands are believers in it. So there's a journey that we're still on in evidence-based marketing, and it's a challenge that continues to be. Now, that's in part what this series was about, was beginning to socialize some of this content and to start conversations. So uh, I feel good that we've that we've started off strong. The third one, and the one that I find the most comfort in, is the, the idea that after all is said and done, creativity is still the key currency of effectiveness. Now, when we look at award-winning work, they're typically they typically share certain characteristics. Number one, they have a uh, sufficient spend level. Number two, they have the right uh, mix of channels in its in their marketing strategy, their marketing plan. And number three is that they have the right time in market, the right amount of time in market. But those are the sort of the three pillars of effectiveness uh, that exist today. Now, James Herman brings up a great point, which is what happens when all brands are um, have sufficient spend levels, have the right uh, channel mix, and have the right time in market. What is it that wins then? And it is still creativity that is that key currency. So I find great comfort in that. Now, it's not to say that great idea, ideas in market that don't have the support of the right spend level, the right channel mix, and the right time in market uh, are, is going to work. Creativity alone is not going to do it. Uh, creativity becomes a, a significant amplifier of success. So those are the three key findings. I wanted, again, to thank Wark. Uh, our, our guests today uh, is, uh, we have a uh, we have Elizabeth Paul, Chief Strategy Officer at the Martin Agency in Richmond, Virginia. We have James Herman, co-founder of Previously Unavailable and the author of two great books, 
and a case for creativity, and his most recent one is Future Demand. And David Tiltman is SVP of Content at Work in London and has been a part of the series from the very earliest stages, and thank you to David. I hope you enjoy this, and you can reach me at hello at onstrategyshowcase.com if you have any questions. Enjoy. I wanted to start off by just posing to each of you. Maybe I'll maybe I'll start with uh, David. Um, what do what do you feel is the current state of effectiveness in our industry, and and not simply in terms of the results that we generate from the back end of campaigns, but in how effectively we get there at each stage of the journey, David? Starting with an easy one, Fergus. That's yeah, right. you know. um, look, it's uh, look, it's a huge question. Um, so I overall I feel we're at a sort of a bit of a bit of an inflection point in terms of marketing effectiveness. It's it's a huge topic, it's a huge thing, but I, I feel like what we've seen over the past 10 to 15 years is the gradual accumulation of a body of evidence that you know there are people who have differences about exactly what direction it points, but it all points in roughly the same direction. As lots of people will argue about whether distinctiveness is more important than differentiation, all these sorts of things, we can get very sucked into some very um, granular debates. But overall, the evidence points in 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 uh, in the right direction. We can sort of we can sort of talk about what that direction is maybe during the course of this podcast. So I feel like. I feel like uh, we're in a, an increasingly good place in understanding what marketing effectiveness looks like and how to sort of drive it. I, that doesn't mean we're necessarily going to reap the benefits quickly. Um, there are still major hurdles to overcome. Uh, one of the things we're working on at, at Walk in particular is around culture and the importance of culture, both with an agency and client, uh, to unlock the ability to take advantage of this, the, the 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 sort of things we're talking about, but um, but I guess overall I feel like we've come we've come through a period of really important, uh, you know, research, fact finding, um, just accumulation of knowledge, and many many more people now have access to this sort of knowledge, and and you know the fact that the fact that people like. Byron Sharp or Benetton Field or uh, increasingly people like James are known about in the industry and discussed uh, is, is a good thing. And is certainly, if I go back 10 years, uh, we were not having these conversations. Do you feel that we are halfway there or more than halfway there in our true understanding of the of the issue? And I'm so curious what you're going to say because I have a slightly different point of view. So, I'm where on the spectrum do you think we are? Oh, okay. Where on the spectrum? Uh, <laughs> okay. I wish I knew where the end point was, that I know how far, <laughs> how close we were to it. Um, I look. I think we look. I think there's a lot to do. Yeah, and and I think um, I, I think particularly uh, in actually particularly in markets like the US, there's there's possibly. Uh, uh, you know more, you know more road to run, if you like. But uh, I am very heartened by the the number of clients I see talking about this. It's not just a sort of uh, preserve of the strategy department. Uh, you know, the lone strategist fighting the fight. We are seeing more clients talk about 
the, the the sort of things they need to be talking about and having the right conversations. So are we, we probably aren't even halfway there yet. No, we're probably not. We're probably not even near, but we've, we've, uh, what, what's the Churchill quote where this isn't, this isn't the beginning of the end, but it may be the end of the beginning. <laughs> yeah, and, I like that. and honestly, I'm, I'm heartened um, by an optimistic assessment that, you know, we, we have, you know, established a lot of shared knowledge when you were talking um I was thinking about was the futurist William Gibson who said the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed yet. And so part of me um, was like, that's great. Maybe someone has arrived at the answer and it's just not evenly distributed. Um, Because I I kind of went into that question almost thinking the opposite. I think the industry right now has a dearth of disposable thinking. I think there's a lot of spray, pray and spray strategy. Um, I remember sitting in the Effie's finals room, you know, this year, and they do this interesting thing. I'm sure you guys have experienced where the people running the Effie's kind of do a focus group of the finals judges to be like, what are you seeing so that they can kind of bubble up and aggregate what they're seeing. And the big takeaway from our room on the final day was just a lot of disposable thinking and not a lot of brand building. And their comment was that they're seeing that absolutely everywhere. Um, and and we can talk about you know the different reasons for that, but I think right now, I I don't know that I think there is broad consensus on what metrics matter, and and often conversations about measurement um, skirt the fact that we all are selectively choosing what measurements we're paying attention to in some ways, and so you know while there is established canon over decades on what makes effective work and and that is measured and that is scientific and and that is replicatable and you can point to that if it says something different than a red light green light copy testing score you know then there are a lot of marketers who will throw away decades of validated research for you know a score that amounts to a paper shield and i'm not just trying to impugn the, the copy testing industry um, but those are both metrics and which one of those carries the day and so i think i went in with maybe a less rosy picture so it heartens me that you're like we're in a good place i don't know if we've got all the answers to your point but i think we're starting to ask the right questions which mm-hmm. which for years i don't think we were that's good james what do you think yeah, I think if I reflect on, you know, when I started in the industry, uh, the, the the body of effectiveness, understanding and knowledge was, you know, was really, really thin, right? Um, and over the past, particularly the past 15 years, we've amassed a kind of body of understanding that really shows how advertising works, um, what makes it work better, why that is. And so I think we've never had the understanding that that we have today, right? And there's a real kind of, you know, there's now almost a playbook for what a good long-term approach to building a business through advertising looks like. Um, but to Elizabeth's point, that knowledge is not evenly distributed. Uh, and so it's really interesting for me because I train companies on effectiveness, you know, all over the world. And it's, you know, in the in the UK and the in Europe, um, we tend to find quite a high degree of kind of exposure to an understanding of the work of the Ehrenberg Bass Institute and the IPA and and those sorts of organizations. In the US and Elizabeth, I'd be interested in your kind of view on this, but you know, much, much, much lesser exposure and and some and sometimes absolutely no awareness whatsoever that any of that work has been done. So, no, so I think that's kind it, yeah. of an interesting thing. Yeah. And so so I think there's kind of that that not even distribution. I think as well, just the industry is constantly assailed with um with new, shiny, interesting 
interesting things that make us feel like maybe everything's changed, right? And the old principles don't hold true anymore. Maybe now that the metaverse has come along, you know, the rules are different. Maybe now that it's Gen Y, we're focusing on not millennials. The rules are completely different. Um, and so I think we're guilty as an industry, and we're probably guilty as a species, to be honest, of kind of over-focusing on what's changing and under-focusing on what's not. And, and I think that idea of like, we all have a recency bias to the newest, you know, even shiny measurement tool, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Um, I always think about, uh, was it Bill Bernbach that was like, human nature hasn't changed in a million years and it's not going to change in the next million. The superficial things will change, but the fundamentals of of what drive us do not. I, I think I went in um, to the series expecting, you know, a lot of what's new and what's next. And there was some of that, but one of my biggest takeaways, interestingly, was like a recommitment to the fundamentals, you know, of things that we know to do, like asking questions when you get, you know, maybe a weak input brief, like, but what do you need the work to do? Like, how does the marketing strategy ladder up to your business strategy? That feels so basic and so fundamental, but when you're reminded of it, you really have to check yourself and be like, for this brief I'm working on right now, have we gone, you know, all the way back? And so I think the mix of, yes, I think there's emergent research and emergent technologies, but also a lot of the core business fundamentals haven't changed and we all have to like recommit to them. So Elizabeth, is it fair, to, uh, is is David's comment fair in your mind um, when he said that uh, there's more road to run in the U.S. when it comes to effectiveness? Do you see it that way? Do you do you feel that different continents are sort of speaking different languages when it comes to effectiveness? It's an interesting question. I think for me, it is less about the socialization of the data because, like, I will often bring, you know, Benayan Fields, you know, and and those other, you know, the WPA or the yeah, the amazing like longitudinal research on the effectiveness of work. Um, so I, I don't think it's a lack of exposure. I think it's competing priorities. And one of the things I thought a lot about, if we can just think empathetically about a lot of marketers right now, is that they're in environments where their brains are subject to scarcity dynamics, you know, wh whether it's the pressure of being given a number, um, as Mark talked about in the first one, and then have to back your way into how you're going to get there. I think, you know, shit runs downhill and, and agencies see the other end of that. And so you know, a lot of work has been done on what scarcity does to our brains. It it makes us narrow our focus. Uh, we prioritize short-termism. And so if you're in an environment where, you know, your job is at risk, your budget's at risk, and you've got to prove something right now, it doesn't matter how many longitudinal studies are pointing to the clear right-term, you know, long-term answer that, you know, I have to make my numbers this year, even if it hurts me in year two, three, and four, I think works against one's ability to listen to the data. So I, I've always found through guests on the show that the um, when I try and talk Bennett and Field, Ehrenberg Bass to U.S. agencies, my sense is there isn't a fluency around it. There, there isn't the acceptance of it. And there does not seem to be in the U.S., and, and it frustrates the hell out of me, there doesn't seem to be very powerful voices in the U.S. that are talking effectiveness in the way that Ehrenberg Bass is. And, and you know, Ehrenberg Bass talks about itself as being sort of international. I don't sense that. I don't sense. And I think in the U.S., we tend to we tend to nod to only things that we know well that are of the United States. Is that... I mean, are you sensing that at all, David? Do you do you get a sense that you guys are in the U.S. Obviously, as work, 
you're trying to grow in the U.S. Do you do you find that this is true? Yeah, uh, yes, it is. But I, I'd hate to generalize about the largest advertising market on the planet. Um, <laughs> there's, there's clearly a lot of very very smart people in the in the U.S. advertising industry who who uh, are are over this. I, I do think uh, Elizabeth Elizabeth has a point. Um, so one of the messages we get back from a lot of our uh, US clients is that they're really struggling to uh, make the case for effectiveness over efficiency. Uh, and this sort of dichotomy between the two, this sort of the need to be efficient in the short term is is eating into the ability to be effective uh, over the, over the medium to long term. And that may be a reflection of corporate culture. It may be a re- reflection of um, uh, just the sort of dynamics within the industry. It may be a reflection of the types of metric we we now have on so many of the uh, of the, the the digital platforms and the the you know the sort of all hammered about you know ROAS as being the the, the new the, the the shiny new metric. So. I think there is there is something there. I'm not saying that doesn't exist. Certainly not saying that doesn't exist in in the UK or in Australia or in China. Uh, but but it, we this is a message we hear repeatedly from our clients in the US. Yeah, what's the adage that it's very difficult to get someone to believe something when their salary depends upon them not believing it? I think you know I, I've had that conversation, and you know, I'm, I'm an acolyte of you know Orlando Wood and a lot of the other great work that's being done outside the U.S. Um, but if you take that in to someone who's like, okay, that's all well and good, the long and short of it, or you know what have you, but you know I'm bonused on my ROAS this quarter, or I'm going to lose my job if we don't make our numbers right now, um, and that's that's future me's problem. I, I to me that's where the conversations are breaking down is the misalignment, you know, with objectives and the pressure a lot of marketers are under. I don't think it's a lack of exposure to the available data itself. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. One of the things that that I've really noticed is is that as we improve as marketers understanding what makes for effective work. Often the block is the people above and around us, right? Who are tasking us or expecting us to do things that go against those principles. And so how we actually take this body of knowledge and and shift it up a level, right? How do we get the broader business community and the C-suite and and board directors and those sorts of audiences kind of understanding what we understand? I think that's probably one of the next frontiers for, uh, for all of this effectiveness work. One of the things before we dive in a little bit deeper, I I don't want to skip this, but because I think everybody would be interested in knowing you three guys was there was there one or two sort of key takeaways from the series that struck each of you? Um, can I start with James? I mean, you were you were very deep into this, James, and it's it's sort of it's one of your worlds because you're a pretty prolific guy. This guy's got more businesses than. Uh, you can imagine, but uh, but James, what? Tell us about some of the one or two of the takeaways you took from the series. Sure, yeah. I mean, one of the main ones for me is that effectiveness is a team sport, right? Um, and what I mean by that is there are a whole lot of different people that need to kind of align and believe in the same things and be working from the same body of knowledge um, in order to create what we think of as effectiveness, right? So it's not just how do I write 
you know, an amazing brief or come up with an amazing strategy, or it's not just about the creative idea. It's about doing all of that stuff, getting the objectives right at the start, which is really the client's kind of, you know, that's, that's where it starts at the client end, getting the budget set right, which again is kind of much more in the client's domain than it's instantly in the agencies, getting the targeting right, which is kind of a media and client and sometimes agency thing, um, balancing the long and the short, using distinctive assets and managing mental availability, um, using creativity to kind of bolster effectiveness, the sort of campaign um, variables around level of spend and duration and number of different media, all of that, you know, we've got to sort of line all of that stuff up to be really driving an effective advertising strategy for a brand that kind of really grows the business over time. And so there's not one person that can be responsible for all of that right it takes kind of it takes a combination of people from the client side from the agency the creative agency the media agency we all need to be kind of um uh, contributing to that so i think one of the things going back to elizabeth's point about this knowledge not being evenly distributed if you've got one or two people on the team that really get effectiveness and really understand um what that means it's kind of not enough you know it's a start it's a good starting point but what we really need to be doing is is making sure that everyone on the team understands these principles and buys into them and comes into the project or the conversation or the brand already kind of understanding what's what. Um, that, I think, is where we see the really high highs of effectiveness is where there's a client and agency team that really understand, you know, collectively what it takes to do very effective work, not just once but consistently over time. Yeah, I mean, for me, I've always found from um, it coming up in the industry as a as a as a planner i would always be asking questions and always curious it's the essence of what this show is about is just asking questions getting them answered and it was it was not welcomed in most situations where you had a client coming in and there was some confusion in what exactly they wanted or what the ask was and it seemed that there wasn't a a culture within the agency, there wasn't a willingness to push back. And I'm wondering how we get to that, Elizabeth. Is there, are you finding that, do you almost find that wall sort of exists too, where you can push enough, but you've got to be polite. You've got to maintain a relationship. There's only so much that client can answer. And then in essence, you can end up starting on the wrong foot and having no way to get around it. Yeah, it's a really good question. Like there was a one of my takeaways from the first episode was there there was a comment where he said the problem is when you start with goals that don't make sense and work back from there. And I thought about how often I've seen that happen where you're getting an input brief that doesn't really state a business problem but is halfway to a creative answer and no one is really taking a step back, you know, to be like, "Wait, does any of this make sense?" Yeah, and right. And so you're already starting on like very shaky ground. Um, again, I, all, to me, all of these things are kind of deeply connected. I don't feel like we, focus group of one, as an agency have a hard time pushing back. But I think we are. I'm fortunate enough to be in an agency that has a, a strong and slightly unapologetic point of view and is willing to walk away from things if they're not the right fit. That's the key. That is the key, I believe. And I think a lot of agencies right now aren't in that position. And that's really hard. You know, if you're worried that a hard conversation is going to jeopardize people's jobs and, you know, this is a conversation for another time, but you look at kind of the continued degradation of how agencies are treated, you know, 
360 day payment terms, um, you know, pitches with no budget and no visibility into who you're pitching against, ghosting, like all these other things. I think the power dynamics and the relational dynamics are really bad. And again, going back to fear is the death of creativity and scarcity does bad things to all of our brains. It doesn't set a table where an agency can come to that table as an equal partner and say, hey, I want to ask you some questions so that I can get you what you need. I think personally, I feel like we have a lot of freedom to do it, but I recognize not every agency is in that position. And we always obviously want to be nice about it, but we also have to recognize there's times where they don't have the answer either. Like I was talking to someone earlier today about what I'm finding to be a more frequent phenomenon, not just personally, but in other strategists in the industry of writing our own input briefs where a client is like, has like kind of a vague ask and you realize that they don't know what they're asking for. And I'm not impugning anyone in particular. And so we end up taking a first stab, but like, is this what you want the work to do? And sending it to them. And yeah. they tweet, like, I think I just wrote my own input brief. I'm not saying it happens all the time, but I feel like that never used to happen and it's happening more often. And so there's also just the issue of like, even if we feel like we can push back, do they have the answers? And depending on where they sit in the organization, the answer isn't always yes. I think it's hard for a lot of reasons. Yeah, and I think one of the things that Greg Hahn brought up when we were talking about about uh, his agency mischief was, and it's a point that I've heard made many times, and I totally agree with it. Um, we were talking about how do they select clients, and he, in essence, said, um, "Well, clients select us because they know what we stand for. They know what to expect when they arrive here." And I think the same can be said of a handful of agencies that have a clear point of view. And you know when you when you approach them what you're going to get. And you have to have the appetite and the tolerance for that and um, the willingness to go with it. And I think in that situation, there's more of a, a, a willingness to be open to sort of deeper questioning of what your goals are when you're going to somebody knowing that you're going to get great things at the end. So going through the journey in the way that they define the journey, the agency defines the journey, is the uh, route to more effective and creative work. I think that's exactly right. Funnily, we were in a pitch early last year. We didn't win, but I will tell you, it was some of the best pitch work I've ever seen in my career. It was so fun. Um, and at the end, they were like, well, you guys definitely lived up to your reputation. And we're like, oh, Lord, <laughs> like, what is that? I mean, um, and they were like, no, no, no. We heard that like you were you were going to be really passionate, like you were going to have a strong point of view on the work, and that we should be we get, should expect to be pushed around creativity and culture. And for them, they were like, we love the ambition and the thinking. They just weren't organizationally ready, you know, to do that kind of work. But in some ways, it was like, okay, fair. If so, and I think mischief is in the same position. If you're going to come to us, you, there's going to be some, you know, polite pushing. And I think in that environment, it's easy to push a brief or to ask questions. Um, but I, I do think a lot of agencies don't feel like they have the freedom to do that right now. And that's hard. Yeah. I mean, you you talked about that, James, from, from a Colenso point of view, that as yeah. you were CSO at Colenso at one point, and that was one of the things that you wanted to understand is if the culture is about effectiveness, how should the culture be structured? Yeah, definitely. And I think part of the, I mean, part of the um, the responsibility is on the agency, I think, as well, to do a slightly better job of educating their clients or getting them to see things through the same lens that they do. I think one of the things that we thought a lot about is how do we 
how do we get clients lined up around the same definition of what great work is that we have in our heads so that when we all walk walk into that room when we're presenting creative, we don't have a client with a sort of checklist in their head, which is super different to the checklist that we've got in our head. And we're trying to match things up and, and nothing's quite working. So I think, you know, that's a, that's a job for the agency to do, to take time out from the day-to-day relationship and sit with clients and kind of soak in great work together. Look at the best work in the world. Look at the most effective work in the world. Talk about what, you know, what, what, um, what that work is about, what typifies that work, what, is the, what are the kind of key themes that run through that and agree together, you know, this is our definition of what we think fantastic, effective, brilliant work is. Um, so we all start from that same place. I think we don't do that nearly enough. And so that often causes those, you know, creative presentations where we seem to be talking across purposes and and the agency's desperately trying to sell something that the client desperately doesn't want to buy. And um, and that's really tough. David, what do you, I mean, I, you know, I think in essence what we're talking about here is sort of the role that culture and ambition play for brands both client and agency. Um, is that something that, I mean, do you guys sort of bake that into the overall sort of work, understanding that culture matters uh, as a factor? And is it a significant factor in your view? The more we've looked at this, the more we find it comes back to culture. So the, uh, I think for a, uh, let's say like a few years ago, it, we sort of felt, well, you know, if you've, if you've got the evidence there and you can you can build your case and you know that if you've got to invest this much, you invest ahead of you know, share of voice and balance your spend and you you invest prioritize reach and do all these things, then uh then you know it's it's, it's obvious and you get your metrics lined up and you, you sort of say, well, okay, you get your you've got your investment piece, you've got your your measurement piece, and if those things are joined up, then you're good to go. But Actually, it's it's clearly not that simple. And as you've heard from James and Elizabeth, you've got a whole host of stars that have to align within the agency side. And that's got to connect with the vision and the incentivization and all the other things that have to happen on the client side. And I think, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an area where you'll hear us talk a lot more about this um, in Cannes in, in June. We've got a big actual piece of work coming out around it. Um, and actually culture and the cultural element of it is almost like the missing link in effectiveness now we're increasingly learning about how to invest and what to prioritize we're getting better at learning about what to measure there's still a long way to go but it's it's the culture piece and how you connect these things up and build that shared vision that that is that is often missing it's such an amazing point because i think if you ask most agencies or most industry people what are brands you would love to work with, you know, or, or what do you want to go in? They'll name brands or they'll name categories. And the truth is you can do interesting work in any category. And sometimes you win a brand where it's, it's most interesting work is behind it or the people who made it great aren't there anymore. Um, rather than saying we are going to chase marketers who believe what we believe about how brands grow. And in a perfect world, that's what the pitch process is supposed to be. Like, this is our philosophy 
does that philosophy align? Um, so James, to your point, you're not, you know, after you've gotten married and you're, you're in your creative presentation, actually finding that you have completely different philosophies, completely different value systems. And this is always going to be really painful and hard. One of the stats we go back to our positioning as an agency is all around fighting invisibility. And it's rooted in a, a piece of research that says that 84% of ads are never seen. They're somewhere between like actively avoided and passively ignored. So we aim for the 16%. And we used to say that we aimed for the 16% of marketers, but then pointed out that probably 2% of marketers make all of that 16% of work that right, anyone's doing. Right. But now we've got to find the 2% of marketers um, who, who are not content making things that are invisible, which sounds like it would be such an easy ask, but a, a lot of... Um, a lot of people would say, I, I fundamentally have a different philosophy about what makes great work. And so I think it's both at the beginning. And James, I think you make a really good point. Actually, even once you're already in relationship, going back on a semi-regular basis, I don't know if it's annually or or episodically to be like, let's take the brief and the creative on the table off the table. And let's just talk about what makes great work and what makes effective work. And it, it starts that conversation at a different altitude. It seems to me that most of the most of the data around effectiveness is based around sort of spend level, channel mix, and the amount of time in market. So when we're reporting out on the best campaigns or the most effective campaigns with the with the strongest number of of um, of business uh, outcomes or business effects that we're basing it on those three factors, spend level, channel mix, and amount of time in market. That seems to be the way that Bennett and Field reported out. And to me, what about creative idea? What about strategy? They don't seem to be reflected in the definition of what makes effective work, James. Are you, am I reading that wrong? Uh, I think it comes down to like, it's really easy to measure things like, you know, duration and number of media channels. And it's really easy to do modeling on those things. And so we tend to manage what we can measure. And so, you know, it tends to go in that direction. I mean, what I can absolutely 100% say is every time we do, you know, any piece of effective analysis where we can also throw in creative quality, I, you know, in in my case, you know, what I tend to look for is whether a campaign's won a creative award. So if we can separate out in effectiveness databases the campaigns that have won creative awards from the ones that haven't, um, we always find that the ones that have those creative award-winning qualities are much, much more effective than the ones that don't. So there's absolutely kind of, there's no doubt at all that that creativity makes a huge difference. It's just, it's kind of much more difficult to kind of bottle up and put into an easy step-by-step, which is the beauty of our industry, right? That there is that magic there of creativity Creativity, which is what we're, you know, what what most of us are kind of striving for. And I think one thing that's been really interesting, like I said before, you know, in the UK and Europe, a lot of companies have really got it down. Um, the 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 Ehrenberg Best stuff and the IPA stuff, they've really implemented a lot of that quite functional sort of getting the spend level right and getting the budget split across long and short right and getting the targeting right, all that kind of stuff. They've really got that right. And they get to a fact where they get to a point where actually in the category, everyone's doing that stuff. So then again, 
we kind of look for, well, what's going to differentiate and what's going to make us competitive? And it's going to come back to creativity, the magic of creativity. So I think that's one thing that's always going to be the case as we move forward in our understanding of effectiveness as an industry and we all start to implement that kind of effectiveness numbersy stuff, um, we are going to get to a point where there's an even greater need to rely on creativity to really be the differentiator. And so um, so I think although we tend to we underfocus a little bit on that just because it's harder to measure, it's certainly true that it's a, you know, a massive part of effectiveness. It's the quality of the strategy and the quality of the creative idea. But it seems to me from the way, I'll go to you in a second, David, but it seems to me that the um that we're letting a creative award for creative work such as you know a can line be a proxy for strategy and a proxy for a creative strategy um but 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 the reality is that shouldn't we be looking at being able to get a better grasp on the fact that brand x in one category has a very different strategic approach and message approach to brand y and look at the impact uh, all else being equal that that strategic direction or that creative concept has had i mean i think i think probably and we'll come back to this in a second i think something like the insurance category in the us is a great example of that but that seems to me to be a missing component, David. I also think it's it, in some ways creatively awarded work is some like is a good proxy for something that a, a group of, of people in the industry got together and said this is creatively excellent. Um, but if you look at the award shows and how little actual work is getting uh, awarded versus kind of like we had an idea and then we found a cause to tie it to that isn't tied to client brands, I think there will be fewer and fewer instances um, where the creatively awarded work is not like a lovely social cause that made us all feel good, but actually like a client brief that had to move a business objective. I don't know what you guys find, but it, it doesn't feel like that kind of work, even when it is creatively excellent, is getting recognized in the shows as much anymore, which would make that proxy hard to continue to use. Yeah, I think it's definitely true. I mean, we've always been, you know, as a judging community, whether it's judging effectiveness awards or creative awards or marketing awards or whatever they are, it's human nature to be seduced by charitable, good doing stuff, right? It's really hard to um, to not be kind of drawn towards that work and want to, you know, as a jury, you kind of go, well, look, this has been really effective and it's done some good for the world and for people. So why, how could we not give this? Yeah, but, know, the, the but I suppose, award? I suppose, James, the, the, the challenge is that we're not holding and nor, nor do we, nor should we, I'm not saying that we should or shouldn't, but I say we're not holding that work as being accountable for anything other than a really interesting creative idea. And if that's becoming a proxy to support effective work, then maybe that's a gap that we need to fill us to begin to look a little bit deeper, David, into sort of uh, the nuances of effective work upon the traditional uh, pillars of effectiveness in in terms of creative concept in market, tone of work, uh, a strategy that underpinned that. It's, you know, you know what I mean, David? Yeah, I know exactly. Uh, no, it makes sense. So I think there's a, there's a couple of things here. So the, the first one is every time anybody has ever looked at it, the quality of creative is always the number one factor driving the effectiveness of, of the campaign. Now, it needs to be supported in the right way in all the things we've talked about, but the actual quality of the ad is 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 sort of core. I mean, you know, we come to all the 
questions around, you know, driving attention, you know, dr- driving engagement with people who aren't in market. Or th- there's lots of reasons why that is, um, which we've we've been through on the on the series. Um, I think the uh, so I think that's that's the first point. The second point is we we have a slight issue in uh, as James says, it's easy to measure and model a lot of the other things. It's very hard to measure creativity and and also to categorize creativity so we we just tend to use this one word creativity to cover a, an absolutely huge array of things whether it's, as as elizabeth says you know you can you can have extremely creative uh, insurance ads that tell you about a new product but they're up against a creative award against a sort of, I, I don't know, a uh, something that saves your orangutan. But actually, I, I feel this is a really fertile area of, 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 of research going forward. Is actually, well, what if we actually look at what we're trying to achieve, what types of creativity are, are actually going to make the difference for us? Is is emotion always the right uh, the right pro- approach? What types of emotion? You know, there's there's data from Cantal that shows a decline of humour over years and years and years, and humour works. We know humour works, but we're using it less. So there, there's huge there's a huge amount of work still to be done to understand the types of creativity that work best in certain circumstances. And let's be honest, this is an art, not a science. So there's always going to be stuff that just comes out and sort of blows your mind to go, oh, wow, that, okay, that's amazing. It doesn't really fit the model, but it's a brilliant piece of work. I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, one of the things, interestingly, that 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 David and I both worked on a couple of years ago was the effectiveness code. And that was very much about saying, well, if we're looking to achieve different sorts of effectiveness results, what kind of strategy and what kind of creative seems to be best at doing that? So what we really looked for there was a purely commercial work. So we took out all of the charitable stuff and um, and looked at you know proper work for proper commercial clients, um, and uh, and then looked at we developed the creative effectiveness ladder. So looked at different sorts of effectiveness results and a hierarchy of those, and then looked at the type of work that drove those uh, those different types of results. So I think that's actually a really that continues to be a really useful resource in terms of um, I guess a, a lens on what sorts of creativity. Um, lead to effectiveness and under what conditions and get probably a little bit closer to what you're talking about, Fergus, which is the role of strategy and creativity and effectiveness. The other thing I wanted to touch on, um, it came up in the Tom Roach and Claire Strickett episode, and I'm so excited to have Elizabeth here to talk about this because um, that was a, a discussion about um, brand versus performance marketing. And obviously, this is a hugely uh, hot topic in the industry. And the, the the question that I sort of took from that, and it wasn't answered, but I don't think it's easy to answer, is do brand and performance really need to be separate executions? Do they need to be separated? Or can we have what we would call, we called in the episode, branded performance ads, uh, executions? In other words, we used a number of brands from the UK as examples, including Expedia and a couple of others. In the US, I kept throwing in Geico, and I and I, I look at the I look at the insurance category here in the US, whether it's Geico, Progressive, whether it's Allstate, whether it's Liberty. It seems that 
a code has been cracked there, Elizabeth. But I don't know whether you ever, you choose to do that consciously or it just uh, happens as a matter of fact. But do you feel that you're doing both brand and performance in those campaigns? One of the things I actually really appreciated about that episode um, is I think it pushed on the binary between brand and performance. And I think one answer is, you know, can there be work that does both? But I also I also think there's a question of can the performance be more entertaining um, when it even when it is sheer performance work? I mean, we were talking about the impact of um, creative on effectiveness earlier, and I, I almost piped in that is also true of performance data, like even in you know, display ads and, and programmatic in DCO, there's data that shows that like better creative executions in those spaces perform significantly better. Um, even when you're not trying to blur the lines, you're, you're doing kind of pure play, you know, performance marketing. Um, so I actually really appreciated the fact that that episode looked at the relation of one to the other and then posed the question of, of can they live in the same execution? I think with Geico, um, one of the things that is valuable to think about is that they were a direct marketer first. Um, and so I think I, I think I started at Martin 2004. Um, I always can't quite remember. I also think I'm perpetually 25. So maybe that's why I'm in like time. <laughs> um, so I, I was not here for the, the origin of this origin story, but um, it was a direct client before they ever did TV. So I think, that um, direct mindedness has always been a part of the culture of that business. Um, you know, and there, there was like from the early days of 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance. And obviously that claim, you know, evolved over time. I think it's 15 seconds now. Um, but I do think that type of like commitment to test and learn um, has always been, again, it goes back to culture part of the culture of our relationship with that client. Um, and I think that, I think that goes a long way, but I will say, you know, even if the TV feels, you know, very direct or kind of performance minded, that doesn't mean there isn't also performance media happening. Right. And so they're just not mutually exclusive. So, but do you, do you think, do you, do you do you even use that way of thinking about uh, uh, you know, Geico and other brands that you work on? Do you think about brand versus performance, or, or are you just going for result? Is it part of your everyday thinking? Is it a part? Of, is it a conversation you're having with clients? Uh, yeah, I mean, if for no other reason, then we do performance, um, and so we have clients. You know, UPS is a really great example. Um, when I first started back at Martin in 2020, we were on the cusp of launching a new brand positioning for UPS, um, but it was launching exclusively through banner ads because all we were doing was performance. There was literally no budget. And even now, we're not doing, we don't do TV for UPS. Um, but so that is a, was a, I'm putting air quotes, which I guess you can't see on a podcast, performance client, um, even though, you know, Back in the day, we had done like, what can Brown do for you and the whiteboard campaign and other brand work for UPS. Um, but a lot of, while well, the ROAS was fantastic, um, there were places where they weren't getting credit for their modernity, for their innovation um, compared to, you know, like an Amazon. Um, and one of the reasons was the brand. And so what really created the catalytic effect for UPS was when we took the performance, but we layered on um, an amazing social feed and showing up at ComplexCon and dropping, you know, 
a line at Fashion Week within the Black. Actually, when UPS started showing up in culture, that's when you layered that onto performance and the brand really started to explode, both from a brand health perspective and from a, a business performance perspective. Just going back to the original question, do you think it's wrong to define Geico as branded performance or performance branded? Do you, do, do you think that work does a really good job of building the brand in addition to driving transaction? Yeah, yeah, 100%. I just think when you define performance marketing, the strict definition is like anything that can be measured and optimized. Um, and yet often when we say performance marketing, people specifically are thinking about DCO. And so this, this is a yes and. I realize it sounds like I'm dodging the question, but I'm saying yes, I think we create a lot of great TV for Geico that walks an amazing line between selling a product in a very direct way and building the brand at the same time. And we're very proud to have done that with them, you know, for 25 plus years. David, uh, I know that I've brought this this up to you before about, about what uh, came out of the Tom Roach and, and Claire Strickett conversation, um, that, um, that this idea of doing branded performance and, um, it's kind of something that's stuck in my craw. I, I, I'm, I just always feel that it's sort of sidestepped, and and I don't know whether that's uh, just because we don't know enough right now, or do we know enough and it's just not the case? I, I just don't think there's one answer here, uh, and I, I hate I hate to sort of fall back on the it depends answer, um, but I, I think part of the problem is we've got ourselves into a bit of a knot with. These these words, brand and performance, like you know, they, these these things are opposite, and they they. I, I think there are times. Well, there are there are. You need to think about how you're talking to people who aren't ready to buy your products yet, and you need to also think about people who are ready to buy your products yet. And sometimes you can do that together if you're really really good. Sometimes you might not be able to do that together. And there are all sorts of variables that, that and I, I know James will have a view on this because he's he's written about future demand, but uh, there's all sorts of variables that, 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 that may determine which route you go down. But I, I just don't think there's, I just don't think there's one answer. And I don't think, actually don't think we do ourselves any favors by pretending there is one right answer here because, uh, because it, it actually, it actually causes us problems so the one the one thing I'll I'll say here is we get we have problems selling in brand building or creativity if it's seen as the polar opposite of performance and if it's seen as something that is completely different that doesn't connect with the world of performance. So we know that well branded products will should have um, higher sort of metrics, better metrics on their performance work. Um, so the two things connect. If we pretend that they're opposite, that they're separate, and they you just draw a line down the middle, then you actually make it harder to sell in brand building and creativity, in my view. Let's talk about the gaps or the unknowns that you feel sort of remain in the effectiveness ar arena. Um, Elizabeth, after you've you've heard you've heard the uh, you've heard the series, you've got your own base of knowledge. What are the things that you wish we knew more about? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you one that um, that we're chasing that I feel like is is kind of the the white whale uh, for the industry right now is the impact of culture 
um, on sales. And it's one of those places where, you know, similar to the impact of creativity, when you think about math versus magic, um, intuitively, everyone knows that the quality of the creative impacts the effectiveness. And there is data showing correlation. Um, and yet, creativity often involves novelty, which involves risk. And I think there, as we talked about earlier, there's risk aversion right now in the industry. And so all the, you know, kind of corollary data in the world that exists, a lot of marketers will say, right, but I want causation. I want you to show me in the same way that I know with a banner ad or a, a search bid, that if I put a quarter in the machine here, I want to see exactly where a plank goes down. And I want to know how many dollars will come out the other end. And that is harder on things. Again, the correlation we can prove, but the causation in the moment is harder, I think, with both creativity and culture. Um, you know, and and interestingly, my last agency, we had a, a, a metric we called the unfair share of attention score. And here we we use a similar way of thinking that is basically share of voice over share of spend. And and it's very simple. Are you punching above your weight or are you punching below your weight? And how is earned media filling the gap? you know, particularly if you're working with a challenger brand. And so um, the idea is that, you know, we want our share of voice to outpace, you know, our spend and that will drive results. And directionally, everybody looks at that math and is like, yes, that makes sense. Um, but one of the, the the brightest people I know in the industry through, I won't say how much money behind some of the most impressive data scientists I've ever seen trying to prove not the correlation, but the causation and the, the model and the factors. And in some ways, the more math went into it, the less it made sense. Like, <laughs> and so I, I don't know if the answer is you, we will never get from correlation to causation on some of these things that there will always be a leap of faith or a moment of risk, or these things are always going to be better judged in hindsight. But I do feel like um, that is the biggest gap in my mind. I think the whole industry is like, yes, brands that are culturally relevant, that are talked about, that are shared. Again, we have full funnel data. People are more likely to purchase it. They're more likely to try it. They're more likely to rebuy it. They're more likely to recommend it, et cetera. Um, but the causation is, is harder when you're talking about earned media. And so I think that's a gap. I suspect a lot of people are trying to solve it. And I'm I'm a little bit skeptical as to whether or not there will ever be a foolproof metric that will eliminate risk. So one follow-up question on that, Elizabeth. Who do you think are the great voices on effectiveness in the United States, either organizationally or individuals? Oh, that's such a good question. And I'm going to have such a disappointing answer. I don't know. I don't I mean, know either. I'm, I'm, it's, I don't, I'm in the same field. I'd, I'd just like to point out that walk exists in the U.S. So I know, I know. That's well, an aided, that's an aided uh, answer now, aided basis. No, 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 but, but I would say like organizationally, yes, I can point to, we can point to work. We can point to the, point to the IBA. We can point to the FEs, you know, obviously, you know, can now has their, their effectiveness and, and strategy awards. So organizations and institutions, yes, but like individual, but, but does know, the effies actually, most of the ones we refer to, I feel like are, are English. But do you feel that the effies <laughs> actually produce thought leadership or just awards? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think if for no other reason, I know they certainly are trying to do trainings and things like that. And yeah. I do think I highly recommend, you know, the case studies in the same way that, you know, the case studies that work has available, you know, and the other organizations are, are instructive, but I, I don't know that I can think of any individual evangelists 
um, that I think of that are American on this topic. But maybe there's something glaring that I'm missing. So apologies. No, no, I get it. What do you think, David, in terms of those sort of unknowns or those gaps that remain in effectiveness? What do you what do you wish we knew more about? Oh God, there's so many. I mean, there's so many things we we'd, we'd love to know. Um, I'll I'll say one that's top of mind at the moment. So, um, it, you talk talk to marketers, and the the one thing they they wish they knew or they wish they could prove better is how the, a link or, or a link between movements in what they do with their brand and commercial commercial impact and it's it's a really hard one one thing that we've realized in the past uh in the past six six nine months um and this has been sort of a realization forced particularly upon us in europe as we've had very bad inflation uh prices are having to go up and at the same time as the economy is slowing so we've had this what's called stagflation in the in the uh, economists uh, speak but if we could actually start to to make links between brand and pricing power and profit, that becomes a much more interesting conversation with the chief financial officer, because you're then starting to get into what's moving shareholder value, basically to, to, to move the stock price. So um, for me, uh, a big wish uh, would be that we start doing a bit more around pricing and profit. Uh, and, and 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 trying to look at this link between uh, brand and pricing. Once again, we really enjoyed uh, producing the series. Thank you to Work uh, for sponsoring. I think that there's um, there's more that we can do on this in the future, and hopefully we'll be able to produce another uh, version of this uh, maybe later in 2023. We want to thank uh, Elizabeth Paul, Chief Strategy Officer at the Martin Agency in Richmond, Virginia. It's James Herman, founding partner at Previously Unavailable, the author of two great books, I would strongly recommend Future Demand. And the second book is The Case for Creativity. Um, and of course, David Tiltman, EVP, EVP content at Warwick in London. Thanks for being a partner on this, David. And, uh, and uh, we look forward to doing it again, hopefully in the future. Thanks for your time, all of you today. And we'll see everybody on the next episode.